June 20th, 1947. The evening was quietly winding down for notorious gangster Bugsy Siegel. He was reading the LA Times on the chintz couch of his girlfriend's Beverly Hills mansion. Virginia Hill herself was out of town. She told Bugsy she was going to Paris to buy wine. The off-handed line wasn't out of keeping with her extravagant lifestyle and did nothing to raise Bugsy's hackles. Perhaps she'd fenced some valuables while she was at it, filled their coffers even more. And with all the fighting that coloured the pair's relationship, a few days apart was good news anyway. Except that Virginia reportedly wasn't just out of town buying wine. She was out of town avoiding what was about to happen next. Four bullets slammed through Virginia's window, hitting Bugsy's head and chest and killing him instantly. Bugsy might have been the mob queen's lover, perhaps the only man she ever loved, but he was also a mark, just like all the others. She'd seduced him so that she could watch him, all at the request of the New York mob. And she wasn't about to get killed in the crossfire. No, Virginia was going to live and she was going to thrive, whatever the cost. Hi everyone, it's Alistair. Today on Villains, we're covering the one and only Virginia Hill, a modern-day Cleopatra. She was queen of the mob, and her story has a little bit of everything. Drugs, money, romantic betrayal, murder. For better and worse, she was the inspiration for Harley Quinn, who we covered last week. That episode offered a peek at how the audience can determine and direct the shaping of a character. Though Quinn was originally a one-dimensional sidekick, fan enthusiasm has made her one of DC's most popular villains. This is in keeping with the rest of our Mafia, Cartel and Kingpin season, where we've often found that the public likes to recast these criminals as anti-heroes. If you haven't already, make sure to check out this season of Villains and all other Parcast Originals for free on Spotify. The 20th century mafia was a man's world. As we've seen in our episodes on gangsters like Frank Costello, it was a business governed by old-fashioned values. Those included ideals of masculinity and honor that did not embrace bringing women into the workplace. At least, not women you respected. Wives and daughters were put on a pedestal by men like the Godfather. The women who did make it into the workplace, meanwhile, were certainly not there on equal footing with the men. This is evident in the dual meaning of the word moll. It's a term for a gangster's female companion. It also means sex worker. The Mafia was aware of the value in using women for some jobs, like couriers, they were less likely to be stopped and frisked by policemen, and less likely to be questioned harshly if they were picked out of a crowd. After all, as Virginia Hill would eventually tell the cops investigating her boyfriend's murder, I'm nobody but a dizzy girl. No man in the world, least of all Siegel, would have entrusted any important documents to me. So there was a way in for girls. 
but even when they performed their roles with skill and panache, it rarely translated to the kind of respect and power enjoyed by male mafiosos. Virginia Hill was ready to use every trick in the book to become the exception to that rule. She wanted wealth, glamour, power, and respect too. But first, she had to make it out of the Deep South. Virginia Hill was born far from the world of New York and Chicago's power-broking gangsters. Her upbringing was in small-town Alabama, with a tough, abusive father, an often absent mother, and somewhere around 10 siblings. This meant that there was little food to go around, and fewer pairs of shoes. She'd famously opined that it wasn't until she left the South in 1933, at 17 years old, that she got her first pair of shoes. But what's perhaps most notable here is that those shoes and the ability to move were both achieved by soliciting the help of a man. In this case, her husband, George Randall. Virginia learned early that her sexuality and her femininity were tools. Tools that men were often helpless against, either because they didn't understand that they were tools or because they didn't think those tools were powerful enough to pose a threat. Virginia knew better. That first boy was the perfect ticket up to Chicago. He was a means toward Virginia's ambitions of getting out. And from there, waitressing at a local mob spot was the perfect way to ditch him and reach for something better. She wasn't blind. As soon as she arrived in the Windy City in 1933, she knew that the mobsters were the ones with the power, the money, and the prestige. She also realized they were dangerous men. But Virginia buried her nerves. She just needed to get in with them to start making her own fortune. Once she was there, if there were consequences, she'd use her smarts and her charm to get out of them. Unsurprisingly, Virginia's ticket into that world was a man. But this relationship was nothing like the previous, and it would last far longer. The guy was Joseph Epstein, or Joey Epp. He was a money man, the chief accountant for the entire Al Capone crime outfit. At a time when most Americans earned just $10 a week, Epstein handled hundreds of thousands of dollars a day. Joey Epp liked Virginia's waitressing. She didn't bat her eyelashes at the sight of his money, unlike many of the women trying to get involved with the mob. She was reliable. She kept her cool. He noticed her looks, too. The striking, dyed auburn hair, the nice legs. But he didn't notice them in exactly the same way most men did. He simply took infantry. Because he, unlike most men, recognized them for what they were. Tools. Joey Epp didn't want to sleep with Virginia. Although it was convenient to let people think he did, he preferred men. But he thought he could use her. He needed help laundering the enormous sums of money he handled for the mob. He already had plenty of avenues for the task. But Capone's crew was earning so much that there were simply never enough hands to do the job. 
Plus, the police were catching on to his usual couriers. Virginia, still under 18 in June 1934, was something different. Southern, charming, and smart. He offered her a trial run, placing small bets at the Washington Park racetrack. The bets would be made with mob money and placed on horses Joey knew were favored to win, thanks to inside tips. Once the money was in the form of gambling winnings, it could be reported to the IRS as income. It was a method of laundering, hence the appeal for Joey. For Virginia, the draw was her cut of all gambling winnings, 10%. Did Virginia want to be a villain? No, not per se. But like many of the villains we've seen in this season, she did want a slice of the American dream. She wanted to get as far as possible from her shoeless days in Alabama. And this was the opportunity that presented itself. So, yes, she'd commit crimes for money. Plus, she and Joey got along. He saw her like she saw her, brimming with potential. The relationship proved a success for all parties involved, including the Chicago mob as a whole. Despite prejudices against women at the time, with Joey Epps' encouragement, the mobsters started to bring Virginia into their world. That didn't mean they let her bypass the demeaning demands they often placed on moles. They used her for her sexuality. She was notoriously dared to perform fellatio on several mob higher-ups at a mob Christmas party in 1936. And she did so. Right in front of their wives. This, to most members of mob circles, was simply a titillating, scandalous bit of gossip. To Virginia, it surely meant something different. While she wasn't one to advertise her moments of vulnerability, such incidents likely had a powerful effect. And, considering what she did next, that effect seemed to be to increase her determination. If she became a good enough operative and a powerful enough earner, the mob boys wouldn't dare disrespect her. At least, not so overtly. She was right. Joey Epps started moving her up to bigger laundering jobs. He trained her to meet the questions of the police with a haughty stare. He used her to ferry stolen furs and jewels across state lines. She made herself, and the mob, piles of money. And she did it all with such panache that the mafioso started inviting her to sit at the boys' table. She would never be one of them, not fully but she had earned her place as the queen of the mob. One of her most fruitful jobs during these Chicago years, and the one that set her up for her biggest future jobs, was the so-called Riddle Squeeze. Beginning in the summer of 1935, Virginia began to extort as much money as possible from Major Arterburn Riddle, a trucking company tycoon and millionaire. He already funded and fronted some of Capone's largest ventures. But the mob suspected Virginia could squeeze more out of him, hence the name of the con. They were right. Within a year and a half, he was broke. And Virginia and the Chicago outfit were richer than ever. 
Virginia tread a fine line here. Her unique value to the mob was her ability to seduce Riddle, to make him want her so much he'd give her anything, which inevitably involved sex. And she herself, from her early days down south, knew that a man's lust was a useful thing to garner. But she was extremely careful to avoid the appearance of a direct sex cash transaction, of prostitution. When Riddle gave her a diamond watch directly after making love, Virginia allegedly threw it in the toilet. Working as a prostitute would make her nothing more than a common moll, and she was determined to be more than that. But balancing respect, power, and sex was a delicate operation. Luckily, it was one Virginia was learning to negotiate with exceptional skill. And she apparently had fun while doing so too. These Chicago years were full of parties, furs and diamonds, of sex for fun, not work, and friendships with both mafiosos and other mob women, like Al Capone's sister-in-law, Mimi. Being a villain wasn't half bad. Not yet, anyway. Coming up, Virginia's status is threatened. Now, back to the story. By 1935, at just 18 years old, Virginia Hill was making a name for herself in Chicago. She was Joseph Epstein's protege, running seduction cons, ferrying stolen goods across state lines and participating in gambling rackets, and getting very rich in the process. This lifestyle involved plenty of fun and games, glamorous mob parties, diamonds, and heaps and heaps of shoes. It was all a far cry from Virginia's poverty-stricken childhood. But it wasn't easy. Virginia was wary, and understandably so, of being taken for a high-end prostitute rather than a wily, skilled mafia operative. This made her disdainful of gifts that seemed to be the direct product of sex, it also made her avoid any real romantic relationships that might cause her to let her guard down. Her image was her calling card, and love was a risk. She kept that in mind when, in 1937, she got her next major assignment from the Chicago bosses. Get in with Joseph A. Dotto, a.k.a. Joe Adonis, and report back on everything he did. Joe Adonis was a member of New York's most powerful crime family, the Genoveses. And while Capone and his Chicago crew historically had bad blood with the New York gang, they were tentatively starting to do business together. Adonis would move in on some of Chicago's gambling rackets, while New York would allow Chicago to traffic narcotics through their territory. A mutually beneficial deal. If... Chicago could trust Adonis not to skim more of the profits than was fair. Virginia's job was to make sure they could. She first met Adonis in the dining room of New York's Algonquin Hotel, a classy literary place. The pretense was that Virginia needed help fencing $10,000 in stolen jewelry, about $175,000 today. Adonis was well aware that Virginia worked for the Chicago outfit, 
but he was working with them now too, and he was curious about Virginia. Word of this mafiosa had spread through underground channels all the way to the coast. He knew she was respected as well as desired, and as soon as she spoke, he understood why. Virginia was charming, but not pliable. There was an edge to her, and a dangerous electricity. Plus, once they got to a private room, the sex was fantastic. Virginia was in. Within two weeks, Virginia was Adonis's new girl and living in New York. She wasn't just sleeping with him either, or even just sleeping with him and spying on him. She was also working for him, betting at the racetracks and transporting goods. Needless to say, she was making bundles of money. But once again, her professional success depended on a delicate negotiation of her image and men's desire. First, there was Adonis's abuse. She bore it with a chin up and a laugh and never curbed her wit or behavior in response. Not so different from that early Harley Quinn we discussed last week, whose intelligence and flair for fun were never hidden by the shadow of her abuse. For Virginia, though, unlike Harley, the stakes of her response were professional as well as personal. She couldn't let the mobsters see she cared or think she wasn't tough enough to take whatever came her way. It worked. New York loved her just as much as Chicago had. But then, Virginia slipped up. Both she and Adonis cheated on each other frequently during their relationship. But when she slept with his rival, Ben Bugsy Siegel, she crossed a line. It wasn't like her. She'd been catering to men's egos for a long time and should have known that sleeping with Adonis' rival would be a mistake. But she was also human, and the chemistry she had with Bugsy seemed to have been too hard to resist. For the rest of her life, she'd say that night they spent together in New York was the best sex she ever had. Perhaps, in the balance, it was worth what happened next. Her relationship with Adonis was over. And so, as a result, were her two primary jobs, spying on Adonis and working for him. But spying on Adonis had never been Virginia's only job for the Chicago outfit. Even after a year spent primarily in New York with her mark, she'd still been laundering and fencing for Chicago. And she'd done it with panache, as always. But she knew she'd screwed up by losing access to Adonis. After all, maintaining the confidence of her male colleagues demanded more than doing a good job. It demanded perfection. She needed to find an opportunity to prove to Chicago that she was indispensable. In July 1938, she found it. She'd go to Mexico. If she could make valuable contacts down there with the drug lords and politicians, Chicago would want her back. So she crossed the border. She used her looks, charm, and drinking skills to get in with the right crowd as soon as she arrived in Mexico. And suddenly, Chicago was calling. 
Within a month, she'd helped them set up bribes with all the right men to help them move narcotics across the border. And she was back on the Chicago payroll herself. What followed were several years of glamorous travels between New York, Chicago, Mexico, and increasingly, LA. It was here she started mixing with movie stars as well as mobsters and gamblers, notoriously getting into a loud fight with Errol Flynn in a restaurant as they dined. The story goes that she threw a drink in his face. And her name started to pepper newspapers. The gossip rags couldn't get enough of this glamorous, brash mob girl, especially during an era in which they couldn't get enough of mobsters in general. The coverage only increased when, in the spring of 1939, Virginia was linked, once again, with the man she lost Adonis over, Bugsy Siegel. Bugsy officially worked as the New York Mafia's proxy in LA, but he'd gone rogue, starting new criminal enterprises without New York's consent, and, they suspected, without giving them their fair cut. His 35-bedroom LA mansion certainly made it look like his gains were ill-gotten. But New York couldn't kill him off and seize his operations. Not now. Because they had no idea how his operations were run. They'd have to start their LA branch from scratch if they lost him. Better to send a woman in to spy. In 1939, Virginia Hill was allegedly hired by the New York mob to get into Bugsy's life and tell them everything. Ironically, where once she'd spied on New York for Chicago, she was now spying on LA for New York. This flip points to an interesting byproduct of Virginia's constant status as a mafia outsider. However many dollars she brought into Chicago, However many times she proved she was talented and useful, she would never be a real member of the fraternity. Because it was, in the end, a fraternity. Harley Quinn faced a similar impasse with the Joker. However skilled she was at executing his zany heists, however devoted and loving, he never respected her. And he never loved her back. For Harley, this impasse eventually led her to break away from the Joker and become her own villain. For Virginia, it had a similar effect. Being barred from the fraternity meant her status in the Mafia was extraordinarily precarious, hence the Adonis fallout. But it also meant that she wasn't asked for the same kind of loyalty as Mafia men. She was, to some extent, a free agent. New York understood that while Virginia got her start in Chicago, her loyalty had to be to herself. So they recruited her to work for them. It wasn't a betrayal if there was no loyalty to betray in the first place. But getting together with Bugsy was, according to many reports, more than a job for Virginia. Their relationship was most likely at least somewhat emotional for both. And at the very least, Virginia never changed her tune about that first night they ever spent together. It was the best sex she ever had. That didn't mean their relationship was good. It was plagued by cheating and violent abuse on both ends. The couple regularly hid their faces with heavy makeup, 
hiding bruises and black eyes. Once, Virginia even had Bugsy arrested for a petty crime, although he got off with a fine. But their lives were increasingly intertwined. They started working together, just as Virginia had with Adonis. They fixed boxing matches, set up sucker bets, and worked over celebrity friends at the racetrack. Then, they bought Mexican casinos and mansions in LA and Miami. When Bugsy started building the notorious mob-backed Flamingo Casino in Las Vegas in 1945, they reportedly skimmed millions off the top of the budget and hid them in Swiss bank accounts. Their exploits were plastered across every gossip rag in America, at least rumors about their exploits. Images of Virginia's glamorous outfits and Bugsy's handsome, movie star-esque face were a dime a dozen. And still, America couldn't get enough. They were the mob it couple. In fact, Virginia did such a good job of very publicly infiltrating Bugsy's life that New York started to worry. If they'd recruited her after all, there was nothing to say Bugsy might not get her to double-cross them. Especially as the job wore on from months to years, and they started to notice her cons. It wasn't just the Flamingo. They also started to wonder if she was skimming profits off her fencing jobs and gambling rackets, stealing from both New York and Chicago. She was likely pocketing tens of thousands of dollars from these smaller deals. So they warned her, don't get too close to Bugsy and his schemes, or rather threatened her. She'd been around the mafia long enough to know the difference. Coming up, Virginia does her best to keep ahead of the mafia's games from coast to coast. Now back to the story. Sometime in the spring of 1939, mafiosa Virginia Hill started a relationship with fellow crook Bugsy Siegel on the orders of the New York mob. The relationship likely meant something more to Virginia than previous jobs, and it brought her name recognition to new highs with the American public. But ultimately, that didn't change things. Her career was on the line if she messed up the assignment, but she'd gotten deep enough into the Mafia's games that her life was on the line too. If she wanted to survive, she had to treat Bugsy just like she'd always treated men, as a means to an end. This mentality was tested in 1947, when New York planned to kill her boyfriend of eight years. Virginia almost certainly had warning of this assassination, likely from her oldest mafia friend, Joey Epstein. He'd given her jobs for years and helped her out with loans when she needed them for her own schemes. On June 16, 1947, she boarded a plane from LA to Chicago. From Chicago, she called Bugsy. She was going to Paris to buy wine. And she did fly to Paris. She may have been trying to get as far as she possibly could from the scene of the crime. It took place at her Beverly Hills mansion on June 20th, 1947. Bugsy was shot through her living room window. Two bullets hitting him in the head 
several others piercing the rest of his body. And Virginia didn't do anything to stop it. She had proven herself the queen of the mob. But she couldn't enjoy her victory. She may have been afraid that it wouldn't be enough to keep her safe. She may have felt regret or perhaps grief. Regardless, the next several years saw Virginia dip into a deep depression. She was often drunk, she wasn't working, and lived instead on her savings and Joey Epstein's dime. She attempted suicide several times. Some commentators have suggested that these were staged, that Virginia took just enough pills to make her attempts at suicide appear serious. Really, they were a blackmail tactic. She kept a safety deposit box with a packet addressed to the district attorney of LA County. Inside was evidence that could implicate 10 mafia bosses in Bugsy's murder. After each apparent suicide attempt, she'd allegedly get a payoff from those bosses. She proved she was ready to die and thus to send that packet to the DA. But of course, if she had enough money, she wouldn't want to die. And thus, the packet wouldn't go anywhere. This scenario is possible, though surely there would have been easier ways to extort Bugsy's killers. Regardless of how far Virginia took her schemes around Bugsy's death, one thing did become increasingly clear. The mob wasn't coming for her life. Not now, anyway. Perhaps she thought she could escape them completely in 1950 when she met ski instructor Hans Hauser. With him, she may have hoped she'd have a different, better sort of life. Far away from the betting, the skimming, the fencing, the spying, and all the other cons that she ran between the ages of 17 when she started working for Joey Epp and 30 when Bugsy Siegel was shot. Whatever her hopes, the couple married in March of 1950. But if Virginia was done with her past, it wasn't done with her. She was called on to testify in the notorious Key Father hearings, the FBI's first major attempt to determine the extent of the Mafia's power. Her hearing date was delayed thanks to pregnancy with her first child. In November 1950, at the age of 34, Virginia became a mother. But she couldn't escape New York's Foley Courthouse forever. She was called to the stand once again in March 1951. And Virginia was not about to step back into the public eye as anything but the glamorous mob queen she'd always been. She emerged from her limousine in a black suit, silk gloves, and a blue mink stole. A large hat framed her face, aged from years of drinking but still pretty. Less elegant were the punches she threw at the reporters crowding her path. She was no Lily, and she wasn't about to let this horde yell at her without fighting back. Quite a Harley Quinn move. The reporters followed Virginia into the courthouse, despite the punches, and kept snapping photos as she gave her testimony. A testimony in which she gave nothing away. Nothing except insight into what it takes to be the queen of the mob, 
As she put it, But I never knew anything about their business. They didn't tell me about their business. Why would they tell me? I didn't care anything about business in the first place. I don't even understand it. She was relying on her femininity and the sexist assumptions that came along with it. The senators conducting the hearing pushed back against this narrative. One explained, The reason I ask you is that you seem to have a great deal of ability to handle financial affairs. But still, she played dumb, replying, Who, me? She barely even knew Bugsy's friends, she claimed, spinning out a playful, charming narrative that again leaned on stereotypes of the ditzy girl, the clueless girl, the girl, period. I didn't ever go out. In the first place, I had hay fever. I was allergic to the cactus. Every time I went to Las Vegas, I was sick. So I had to take those Benadryls and they would make me feel terrible anyhow. Ben's friends, I never even met them or was around them. Not all lies, actually. She was allergic to cactus and avoided going to Las Vegas in part as a result, even when Bugsy was working on the Flamingo. But the sentiment was certainly inaccurate. She knew all of Bugsy's friends. They were her friends too. Just like his cons were her cons, his Swiss bank accounts were her Swiss bank accounts. Unfortunately, lying before the Senate about her income was a crime, as was income tax evasion. From the moment she left the courthouse that day, she was tailed by the FBI. But Virginia still had a few organized crime contacts up her sleeve, and a few more wily ideas. She made her way to Texas, along with her old friend Joey Epstein, who, like her, was in trouble with the law after the key father hearings. Together, they met up with an old contact of Virginia's, Mexican Major Luis Amezcua, who was in the US under diplomatic immunity. The FBI couldn't touch him or anyone in his entourage thanks to that immunity. They watched, hands tied, as Virginia and Joey Epp crossed the border. Virginia lived out the rest of her life in Europe with her son, evading the IRS and burning through her money. She remained on the FBI's most wanted list for a time at number three and even for a short while at number one. That was queen of the mob status, all right. But if the IRS never forgot her, slowly America's mobsters and tabloids did forget their queen. The most powerful mobsters of the day were no longer the men she'd worked with. There was a new generation of mafiosos to fascinate and terrify the public. Plus, without gallivanting between US cities and furs and diamonds, she was simply out of sight, out of mind. Even if part of Virginia wanted out of the criminal life she started living at 19, losing it meant losing much of her identity as an adult woman. Before she was a mob mole, she was a kid. And she thrived on the glamour, the stakes, that delicate balancing act of sex and respect she'd managed with such skill and panache. Virginia Hill's identity was being a villain, a fur-clad, 
charming, sexy criminal who never lost track of the fencing numbers or the bets or the mark. Who never let her own desire or emotions get in the way of manipulating the men she played. Well, except that one time in New York with Bugsy. Without the life that had raised her, what was she? Harley Quinn got to become an anti-hero when she left her past behind. Real life isn't so kind. It didn't give Virginia a redemption arc or an empowering second chapter. And unlike most iterations of Harley, who chose to leave the Joker in an act of emancipated defiance, reality didn't even let Virginia claim her loss of villainy as a choice either because she couldn't take life away from that identity and its thrills, or perhaps because she was running out of money. In 1966, at the age of 49, Virginia made one last play to get back in the villain game. She got in touch with Joey Adonis and began to extort him, threatening to reveal her old records of mob transactions to the public and the authorities if he didn't start sending her cash. $3,000 a month was her price. That's close to $25,000 today. A hefty sum, but Adonis agreed to pay it at first. When, on March 20th, 1966, Virginia called and tried to extort a full $20,000 from him, Adonis hung up on her. Then, two days later, she showed up at the hotel where he was staying in Italy. The story gets murky here, but according to Adonis, they spent the day together and made love one last time. The next morning, he gave her breakfast and $10,000 in cash, and she promised never to contact him again. Then, she disappeared on a train back to Salzburg, Austria, where she was living at the time disappeared being the operative word. She wasn't seen again until the following day, March 24th, 1966, when two hikers found her corpse near a brook in Koppel, Austria. With the body was a note. Virginia was fed up and tired of living. After just 49 years of life, the game was up. The coroner declared Virginia's death a suicide by poison, without specifying the type of poison, though it's assumed that she used sleeping pills. The prognosis was in keeping with her pattern of suicide attempts, but not everyone is so sure that the mob didn't finally, all those years later, take out Bugsy's errand girl. After all, Plenty of them had wanted to kill her along with him, even if she had been spying on him throughout their relationship. They didn't trust anyone who'd gotten so deep into business with the guy. Plus, Adonis had plenty of reason to take her out, what with the extortion. Regardless, her life ended with the same mafia whispers that had surrounded her since 1935, when she was the beguiling young mafiosa out of Chicago. She paid a price, both psychologically and very physically, for the way she lived. 
but she did what she set out to do back when she arrived in the Windy City at age 17. She made it big. She lived large. She got in with the boys and played their game with the best of them, despite the different rules she was given, thanks to her gender. Arlene Brickman, a mob girl successor of Virginia's, puts it well. How do you describe a mob girl? There are all types of mob girls. There's a mob girl who sleeps with one guy and she's connected to a mob. There's a mob girl who sleeps around with a lot of different guys, gets loads of presents and favors. And then there was Virginia Hill, a broad that really made it good. But who could Virginia have been? How good could she really have made it in the criminal underworld if she'd been granted the same rules as the boys? That's impossible to say. Even today in the remnants of the Mafia's world, we don't see many examples of women making it into the top of the mob hierarchy or into the hierarchy at all. Real life loves giving women tragic endings, especially when they reach too high. We have to turn to fictional mob girls like Harley Quinn to see villainous mafiosas get their emancipation. Fiction provides the satisfying end Virginia never got. The one where she ended up on top, whether as a villain or rehabilitated as an anti-hero. But fiction doesn't just provide us with such uplifting storylines. Next week, we'll close out our discussion of crime bosses, gangsters and kingpins by examining the story of one of the most classic movie gangsters of all. Johnny Friendly from 1954's On the Waterfront. His story is anything but uplifting. Thanks for listening to Villains. We'll be back next week with our episode on Johnny Friendly. You can find all episodes of Villains and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Villains, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Villains on Spotify, just open the app and type Villains in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Villains was created by Drew Cole and Max Cutler. Villains is a podcast studio's original and is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Villains was written by Nora Patel, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs> <laughs>